If this was a man's service, I don't think they would be tolerating this. It would, be, would have been fixed long ago, but women and their babies are low priority, sadly. That was Marge Adams from the Keep Mum campaign, and we'll hear more from them later in the show. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Rachel Amory and on this episode I'll be joined by Andy Phillip, Adele Merson and Derek Healy to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, compiled and read by Alex Watson. Conservative MPs face an uncertain electoral future all over the UK after a double by-election humiliation. The party lost their former stronghold of Tiverton and Honiton to the Liberal Democrats and surrendered Wakefield to Labour at the by-elections when results were announced on June the 24th. Prime Minister Boris Johnson acknowledged that the results are tough, but vowed to keep going despite the blow to his authority. Millions of the poorest and most marginalised people in the world are missing out on help from social security systems set up to protect them, a UN report warns. This includes as many as an estimated 390,000 people in the UK who did not apply for universal credit in the early stages of the pandemic because they wrongly thought they were ineligible. And a leaked recording of SNP MPs supporting Patrick Grady after he was found to have acted inappropriately towards a member of party staff has been condemned by Nicola Sturgeon as utterly unacceptable. The Glasgow North politician was suspended from the Commons for two days for his actions. Last week, an audio recording of an SNP Westminster Group meeting emerged in which leader Ian Blackford said he looked forward to bringing Mr Grady back into the fold. Thank you, Alex. But let's turn our attention to what's been happening closer to home. It's been another busy week in politics. Nicola Sturgeon is having to apologise for her own SNP group. Ian Blackford is facing calls to resign. And it's not been a great week for the Conservatives either. They have just suffered losses in not one, but two by-elections south of the border. But before we get into all of that, we've been looking at rural healthcare. This is a topic we've done lots of stories on in the past. For those who live in rural parts of Scotland, it can sometimes feel like pulling teeth trying to get access to the right kind of treatment. Now, one of the many issues here is maternity care in Murray. Since 2018, the majority of pregnant women in Murray have had to go to Inverness or Aberdeen to give birth because the unit at Dr Gray's in Elgin was downgraded. Adele has been speaking to Marge Adams from the Keep Mum group, and she has been telling us about harrowing experiences of women who've had to give birth at the side of the A96. Adele started by asking her if this is a tragedy waiting to happen. Well, absolutely. There's no healthcare provider thinking rationally who would ever set up a midwifery-led unit so far away from a specialist unit. So if it wouldn't be acceptable to establish a new midwifery-led unit so far away, why is it acceptable to have this situation now? And certainly in the 1980s, before we had a specialist unit at Dr Gray's, we know of tragedies. There was one woman who spoke movingly at a public meeting in Elgin Town Hall in 2018 about how when she got to Aberdeen, her baby's heartbeat was no longer there, and yet there was a heartbeat when she left Elgin. Now, that happened in the 1980s, but it could easily happen now because if you're travelling in a private car, obviously you've no medical help. If you're in an ambulance being transferred with a midwife, you've got some 
you've got some midwifery help, but you've got no specialist obstetric help. So, yeah, we, we really fear that, you know, there could be a tragedy, there could be a death of a mother or a baby or or both. It's really, we're on the cliff edge. It's It's a tragedy waiting to happen. Are pregnant women in Murray experiencing increased anxiety during their pregnancy as a result of worrying about how their birth will eventually go? Absolutely. I mean, pregnant women in Murray, the one thing they all have in common is dread about where they'll give birth. There's so much uncertainty. There's nothing predictable about what will happen at the end of their pregnancies. And not only with really terrible fears about the birth, but also women who actually fear the process of giving birth because they don't know where it will happen. Will it be in a car? Will it be by the roadside? And certainly as a campaign group, we know that some women have put off having a family because of this. And the health secretary has said that he's obviously yet to deliver the exact timescales for when the changes will be introduced. And he's so far ruled out given a parliamentary statement before the summer recess. Do you think the government is really leaving mums in limbo over this summer? I think all the key players in this, NHS Grampian, the Scottish government, you know, the Royal Colleges of Midwifery, um, obstetricians and so on, they all have a part to play in this. And we don't understand why the timescales are so long. I mean, the latest news is that it will be 2028 or 2031 before they can deliver an obstetric unit. And we, we want to know why. Nobody has been able to explain to us why the timescales are so long. And if we could understand that, we we might feel more positive about the situation. We, we know it's challenging. We know you can't restore the unit tomorrow, but we do think all these key players need to really think, well, how can we look at this in a, a different way? You're delivering a service to approximately a thousand women per annum. So we're not going to have the same service as a big factory, a big baby factory like Aberdeen, but we've got to have a safe obstetric service. So they need to go back to the drawing board and think, well, what can we do to make this possible for Murray women? I know the Independent Review did mention potentially uh, a 10-year timescale. How would your group react if it was to be as long as a decade? Uh, We would find that extremely difficult to accept. Some women are in their third pregnancy since the downgrade and the thought of another 10 years is is crazy. I know the Independent Review mentioned 10 years, but that timescale came about because NHS Grampian and NHS Highland told the Independent Review that it would take 10 years. So I'm not sure how independent the Independent Review is. And I know your group met with NHS Grampian this week. What was the outcome of those discussions? Uh, The the interim chair of NHS Grampian said he was there to listen. And to be fair, he did listen and we appreciated that. But we're not one inch further forward. We we asked him lots of questions and he, he said, which seemed quite ironic, that he was 
looking for answers to these questions too. So if they don't know the answer, who does? And you feel that communication has been poor with the health boards and yourselves? Uh, communication between the health board and the people of Murray has been abysmal, not just with us, with the whole of Murray. Uh, occasionally they put posts on their Dr Gray's Women and Children's Updates page and they turn off all comments. So they have no way of engaging with people. Basically, they have a, a public narrative and a private narrative. And the public narrative is, yes, we're committed, we'll do it. And I'm sure they tell the health secretary that. But we fear that the private narrative is, this is impossible. We'll go through the motions, but we won't achieve it. And why, I mean, this is probably the question that your group has always wanted to know, but why do you think action has been so slow? And why is the situation where, you know, women are giving birth at the side of the road, where they're putting off pregnancies, how is this situation able to exist in 2022? Uh, that, that's a very pertinent question. There has been a historic opposition to Murray having its own obstetric service in Aberdeen. And that opposition lies with some of the senior clinicians in Aberdeen, the managers, the medical director, the chief executive. We have repeatedly asked why they are opposed to Murray having its own obstetric service. No one can answer the question. So it's, it dates back to the 1980s. I, I was part of the original mum campaign in the late 80s and I and several other women went to meet the then general manager of NHS Grampian in Aberdeen. And you will be shocked at what he said to us, but basically he said, don't you worry your pretty little heads about this. And so I think, yeah, there's an issue of equality here. If this was a man's service, I don't think they would be tolerating this. It would, be, would have been fixed long ago. But women and their babies are low priority, sadly. Uh, you've touched on it there, but that was something I was curious to know. How, how did you actually get involved in this campaign in the first place? I had my first daughter in Aberdeen in 1981, while there was no obstetric unit here. And because I had some complications with her, I was then booked for Aberdeen to give birth to my second daughter in 1985. So I I woke at midnight, a week overdue, quite far on in labour. I reported to the local unit here because my mother, a retired midwife, was staying with us. And she said, you can't set out, you must report. So I was checked out. I was seven centimetres dilated, which is pretty far on in labour for a second baby. And so... On a night of snow and ice, we, we set out, um, me in the ambulance and my husband driving behind. Well, I knew I wasn't going to make it to Aberdeen, so the ambulance had to turn back at Huntley. And we went into a tiny cottage hospital where a local GP was called out at 2.30 in the morning and he delivered Amy. She had the umbilical cord twice around her neck. And basically he said, you know, this was potentially a tragedy. Who sent you from Elgin tonight? So 
luckily, Amy and I were both fine. Um, and, well, actually, it was the 14th of February, so she was the best Valentine's Day present ever. Um, but that got me involved in thinking, this is... This is ridiculous, the situation. So I was part of the original campaign, which won the battle. Um, and, and we got the obstetric unit, which, you know, was opened in the early 90s and was open until it was closed, you know, in 2018. And did you ever think that, you know, almost three de around three decades on, that this situation would, would still be the way it is? No, I didn't. I've... My... I have three grandsons who were born in the specialist unit and one granddaughter who was born in the downgraded unit. And I never thought that I would be back to campaigning as a grandmother. I really didn't. I thought, you know, that we had the unit and it was safe forever, if you like, but... You know, once I realised that NHS Grampian were trying to downgrade it over the years, of course, you know, we should have realised that that it wasn't safe. Marge Adams, thanks for joining us on The Stushy. Well, certainly lots to discuss there. Adele, this has been a story that you have been covering for quite some time now. I mean, what, what does need to, to happen here? Is, is anything being done to change things? Yes, yeah, so earlier this year, uh, the Health Secretary came forward with uh, they an independent review had been carried out into the matter, and then he he went and met. I think he came up to the north and the northeast to meet um, with campaigners and clinicians at the start of the year, and that was all to sort of guide him towards his decision, which was um, reported earlier this year that they would reinstate a full consultant-led maternity unit at Doctor Gray's. That's essentially the the end goal of all this. In the meantime, there's something that they keep calling Model 4, which is a kind of temporary solution. Um, there's a timetable due for that in the summer, as in the timetable, not the actual plan itself. Um, and that will lay out a plan to expand the Rigmore maternity unit in Inverness. So that's the kind of midway point. So we're waiting to find out when that plan will be published sometime this summer. And then they think it will be towards the end of the year that the health secretary will lay out that full, full plan in terms of how do we get back to that full maternity unit. But as you heard in that interview, there, the independent review did say that that could take as long as 10 years. NHS Grampy and the health secretary have so far, they've not said it will take that long, but they've sort of refused to say it won't take that long. So campaigners in a strange situation where like she said there, they do feel in a sense of limbo. They're waiting to find out when they will find out the timescales. So for women that, you know, women are looking ahead to a, to a summer and to potentially up to a decade, any woman that wants to give birth in Murray in that time will potentially have to, I'm sure almost all of them will have an element of worry about what their birth will look like. Will it be in Elgin? Will it be in Aberdeen? Will they get to the hospital in time? And there's just a sense that it's not, good enough um that it seems just crazy in in this year that you still got people uh, in one case you know a woman's husband delivered the baby helped deliver the baby literally in the car just off the a96 i can't imagine how scared women are anyway going into having a baby let alone having to think about your partner or your husband delivering the baby for you um just at the side of the road with no pain medication and things it just doesn't it basically doesn't bear thinking about 
I mean, if this is going to be another 10 years, is there anything that the health board or the government can do to sort of support women or, or put their minds at ease between them? Because that's a long time to wait, isn't it? Yes, I think Marge says there they, they would get a degree of comfort if they could find out more answers. So is there a reason why it will take 10 years? Um, I'm presuming there is, but they don't know exactly what those reasons are until the government lays that out. I think there, there has been acknowledgement that there is undoubtedly massive problems. And as you alluded to in your introduction, it's not just this one issue, but there's a wider issue across the north, the northeast and other rural areas all across Scotland of recruitment, of clinicians, of experts who it's a bit easier to recruit these people in the central belt. It, it's, it proves far more difficult to get these people up to Elgin. So I guess from the health board's perspective, they do feel they've got a real battle on their hands trying to figure out how to get the doctors they need to staff this unit and how do they get them to come up to Elgin. But I guess that while that is a problem, well, they've got to come, you know, they're a government, they have got to come up with solutions. Obviously, whatever had been happening so far has not been working. So I think they need, I don't have the answers myself, but they need to look at maybe new solutions, new new attractive reasons why people would want to would want to come up. But yeah, it's a very anxious wait for everybody because it is a very difficult issue. And I think everyone acknowledges it's not going to change in a year. It's not going to change overnight. It, it's going to take quite some time. But in the meantime, you've you've still got this situation. I, I guess people feel a little bit like, as she alluded to there, they're, they're giving up faith a little bit. Well, it's also not been a great week if you are a rail commuter either. A Tuesday and Thursday saw strikes across the country with almost all train services being cancelled. And let's not forget, there is still another strike to come on Saturday. Rail workers are walking out because they've been offered a 3% pay rise, which the RMT union says is unacceptable because it is not in line with the rise in the cost of living. Now, they're looking for more of a 7% pay rise, so quite a bit more than what's been offered. It's led to quite the fallout politically. The SNP, they're blaming Westminster and Westminster is blaming the trade unions. Uh, one person who we've seen a lot of on our televisions this week has been Mick Lynch. He's the general secretary of the union and he's been getting lots of praise um, from people watching these interviews because, well, Andy, just nothing seems to faze him, does it? Uh, no, the, the train strike's been a, a real eye-opener for several reasons, I think. Not, not only the, the in-your-face disruption to, to people's lives, but there's a there does seem to be a bit of a real battle here between a conservative government, which would would love nothing more than to paint the union as a militant, horrendous seventies throwback. Um, personally, I loved the nineteen seventies, but I was in nappies, so maybe it's not the the best the best recall. But it's such a bogus argument, I think, because it just kind of aims um, at people who are presumably no younger than sixty. Um, and there's all you know. Everybody else doesn't really know what that is. It's just this kind of bogeyman thing. Well, the 70s, it was awful then. But I mean, Mick Lynch, he's got longer memory than I do. Um, the union boss that uh, I think the, the, the right really loved to hate. Um, the, the, he's been trotted out. So trotted out, that wasn't supposed to be a pun. The, uh, he, he's been all over the broadcast media and he's really been quietly skewering any any kind of partisan interview interviewer who, who hopes to provoke a row. And there's a great clip of um, Piers Borgen losing his mind in a long segment about Mick Lynch being a, a terror chief from Thunderbirds, which is which is well worth 
a couple of minutes of your time just to see how this sort of standard is is going there. But it's a union flex in some muscle, which is supposed to, which is what they're supposed to be doing. And I think it really just underlines how hollowed out other parts of the labour movement are. You know, we've got inflation going through the roof, cost of living crisis, but the argument from those opposed to any kind of uh, the union's activities is, is very much just, well, suck it up. You know, we're all in it together, but um, the people who are making the argument don't have quite as many um, concerns. And then it becomes a really distasteful argument about, well, train drivers or RMT members or whatever, they're paid too much. So, well, if everyone else is, is really struggling, perhaps... Um, that's not the way the, the end of the telescope we should be looking through. I mean, we've already had two days of strikes. We've got another strike coming up on at the weekend. It doesn't seem to be moving forward, though, does it? No, and and I think in a lot of the public's interpretation of this, it, it just seems like one big strike. When um, actually, when you look back, you know, there's been a, there's been problems that the Scottish government have had with Scotrail, which resolved. But it, it led to a lot of disruption and the temporary timetables that ScotRail had to put on were just um, a nightmare for anyone who does rely on a train. And if you live beyond the central belt, um, well, good luck. Um, I mean, luckily I get the bus. So <laughs> I was all right. But um, if you do need a train, then yeah, it's been really, really a, a big problem not being able to get out of places like Edinburgh if you live um, even as close as Perth or Dundee. You know, the, the, the last train home was very, very early if, if it was there at all. Then, of course, the second problem, the RMT, Network Rail, UK government, they're all owned by different people. They're all overseen by different levels of, of our multi-tiered government. So we're looking at a bit of a long haul here. And I think that the, the RMT will probably be also fairly buoyed by the um, public backlash at the Conservatives. You know, last night, as we speak today, of course, um, Boris Johnson got a very bloody nose in two by-elections. So, you know, perhaps public opinion isn't really with the UK government at the moment. Well, a lot of people have been wanting to ask uh, the SNP's Transport Minister, Jenny Gilruth, and the UK Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps. People are asking, what are they doing? Can they do anything? I mean, are either of those two people to blame in any of this? Is, is there anything they can do? Yeah, well, we had a wee look at that, actually. Our, our, our colleague Justin has a, a little bit of an explainer piece which we can look at about exactly um, who owns what, who's responsible for what, um, how ScotRail fits into it, how the long-distance trains work into it, the signal um, trains and railways and network rail and all that kind of thing. Um, it's all in there. Of course, it's interesting that when um, the Scottish government was having a tough time with the backlash about their handling of the ScotRail row, the Conservatives were very quick to say, you know, you're not lifting a finger, you're doing nothing. And um, now that it's looking at the UK government, um, the Conservatives says it's not really, well, Grant Shapps says it's not his responsibility to meet unions and Boris Johnson gets accused of not lifting a finger. So, you know, you can see how people get um, disillusioned very quickly with this. And of course, both say that the unions are being, um, they're asking too much. But it, it does. It's going to have to come to a point where you know, someone has to win, and if the union has to to fold and give up, then you know that's that's a a big problem for um, the unions. But they did what they were supposed to do. And but if the conservatives have to fold, then um, yeah, the the unions will have will have shown that there is still a bit of clout to it when push comes to shove. 
Well, it doesn't seem to be wrapping up anytime soon either. Well, another big talking point this week has been Ian Blackford. Uh, he's the SNP's Westminster leader. Now, for months, he has been calling on Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign over various different scandals, uh, not least the Partygate scandal. Uh, but the tables have turned this week, uh, and now he's the one facing calls to step down. This all goes back to Glasgow MP Patrick Grady. He inappropriately touched an SNP staff member back in 2016 while on a night out in London. There was an independent investigation carried out and it ruled that Mr Grady had made an unwanted sexual advance and he was handed a two-day suspension from the House of Commons. However, there was a secret recording of an SNP meeting and in that recording, Mr Blackford is heard urging his fellow MPs to give Mr Grady their absolute full support. I mean, Derek, this 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 quite a shocking sort of revelation from this recording. I mean, this is exactly what Ian Blackford's been calling out the Conservatives for all this time at Westminster, isn't it? Yeah, wouldn't it be quite something if actually after calling for Boris Johnson to go for so long, Ian Blackford ends up going first? Um, you know, I think the truth of it probably is it, it seems like his role as West, SNP Westminster leader is hanging on by a thread. Nicola Sturgeon was asked about it at FMQs this week and sort of threw him under the bus, really. Um, turned around and said that, you know, what she'd heard was totally unacceptable. Um, I think I think it's really difficult for him to see. I mean, it's, it's been unedifying to watch him doing the sort of media rounds and, and, and giving sort of really politicians answers to some of these questions. I think when you're talking about something as serious as this, you should try and come out and, and answer questions quite clearly, be upfront, and and that's not the impression, certainly not the impression I got watching those interviews. It didn't feel that way. He's even been talking about, um, you know, I think there was a, a Welsh member of Parliament that he raised um, who who'd committed suicide or there was concerns around that and, and kind of raising those kind of things around this case where actually I think the public will want to hear quite a clear answer. Um I, I feel like you. Know, every time I'm on this podcast, I kind of bang on about accountability in politics, but that's it's kind of right back to that again. You know, this is a an individual, an MP, and Patrick Grady who has power. He's quite a powerful person and is acting in a way towards a teenage member of staff, um, which just illustrates you know the power dynamic. That they clearly thought you know nothing's nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to go wrong for me here. And the way that I'm acting, and off the back of this, there's been a two-day suspension, and that's it. Um, you know, Patrick Grady's going to return to work, and it's all going to move on. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about accountability in terms of the Conservatives and and some of the stuff that's been going on there, Boris Johnson, some of his MPs. But you know, who cares what party it is? You know, you've got to expect better from your politicians, better from parliamentarians than what we're seeing. See what you just said there about the the accountability. Um, there's that. Dichotomy as well. You've got the Conservatives um, up to do no good one day, the SNP up to no good the next day. But then there was a really unedifying bit where it's like, well, you know, we're all as bad as each other, so stop throwing throwing stones at us. It was just a really strange way of of making the public try and pick a side. You say, well, we're all we're all bad, therefore we shouldn't be criticised. Uh, when Nicola Sturgeon um, was having to sort of answer for that kind of an attitude, I think that's when people really started to to turn, I think. And, and it's been every single day, hasn't it? Ian Blackford's been on, under the cosh. And the, the first apology after having gone to ground was um, was like one of those very, oh, I'm, I'm sorry for the way it was handled, but not for the actual point that people were getting really annoyed about. And mm. and then this, this I mean, if you're, if you're being accused of victim blaming, then maybe like, you know, note note that 
when you're about to do your apology because people can see through all those politicians' apologies. I think there's a problem at Westminster as well. I mean, some of the behaviour that we see and see reported is absolutely disgraceful and it's right across the parties. And if you've if there's if there's nothing to rebalance that, then where do you go with it? You know, we've seen that again, that accountability issue where politicians have been effectively getting away with it. Um and, you know, no serious action is really taken. I mean who knows where this is gonna go. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be going away for Ian Blackford. Um but I think certainly that was the intention. Is that you know, you, if you listen to his interviews that he's done, um, you know, he's he's had this two day suspension, and that's kind of it. We're moving on now. There's a situation at, at the Scottish Parliament with Fergus Ewing, and we had a little bit about that this week, where he was accused of bullying. Um, there's been a real push, I think, to try and get you know the Scottish government did an investigation into that bullying. There's been a real push to try and get the findings of that released, but they've not been released because uh, the argument is that under GDPR they can't be. Nicola Sturgeon's talked a little bit about that this week about how she's going to try and change the rules so that in future, um, when a minister is, is being investigated, the, the findings of that will come out. I think that kind of thing will help. Um, that will definitely improve the situation at Holyrood. But there's got to be more action on, on this kind of thing right across the parties to stamp this out. Um, you know, the behaviour is totally unacceptable. I mean, as much as um, Ian Blackford called on the MPs to support him, not everyone has though, have they? There have been some who've said, no, we're not standing for this and we're not um, supporting this. Amy Callahan, I think you're referring to there, I mean, she was the, the first one to put out a, an apology and it was, it, was, um, it was some apology. It was, it, was, it was lengthy and it was fulsome, you know, um, and I think that only served to, to really kind of shine the light even more strongly on Ian Blackford because uh, if, if one MP can say, I'm really sorry, that was totally out of order, um, I didn't mean that, and of course I've been reflecting on it and things like that. Um, and then it was met with quite a bit of silence um, from Ian Blackford who then put out his one. So of course his his um, reaction was judged against what Amy Callaghan MP had, had said and I think certainly their opponents thought that he'd come up short. I think I think even in that case with Amy Callahan, you know, that's obviously a reaction to you know you talk about the strength of that apology. That's obviously a reaction to seeing that oh no, I'm, I'm on you know on an audio recording, um, backing the person who is the abuser, not the victim of all this, uh, and that's why that's 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 why that's come forward. Um, you know, it's 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 a really unedifying look to have that kind of situation situation play out in public, and it ties into some of the things. They've seen reported before. Um, Neil Hanby, when he left the SNP and joined Alba, now obviously he's he's going to have a position on that, isn't he? Um, you know, he's going to have a certain view. But he's he spoke to me about some of the sort of uh, the culture of not raising your hand and and questioning things and going along with with what the kind of the group, the wider group wants. Uh, and that's part of the problem here. I mean, if you listen to that recording, this was a bunch of people saying we're going to back Patrick Grady. From from that recording, maybe there was more later on in the room, whatever else. Uh, but certainly from that, rec that recording, it's groupthink. You know, it's everyone saying, "Oh, we'll get behind them, we'll move forward," and no one's really speaking out. And I think that's a that's a concern, whatever party it is. Well, I think it's safe to say it's it's not been a great week for Ian Blackford. So, uh, well done. Uh, you get our stoosh of the week. Stoosh of the week. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, before we go, we have some exciting news about the Stushy. Uh, we've been nominated for Podcast of the Year at the Scottish Press Awards. Um, we're all absolutely delighted with that nomination. The Courier and the Press and Journal have also been nominated in a, a range of other categories as well, which um, are all very well deserved after a year of brilliant stories from both papers. Thanks to Andy, Adele and Eric. 
and to producer Marvin McIntyre and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more but until then and even after then pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. Goodbye. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.